Finance News now. Here's reporter Alicia Barry. So, Alicia, we had inflation numbers out uh, this morning. They've come in. Bit of a surprise. Roz, we were expecting soft numbers from the Bureau of Statistics in terms of inflation for the March quarter, but we weren't expecting them to be this soft. Well, it seems that sluggish wages growth here in Australia will keep interest rates at record lows today when the Reserve Bank has its regular meeting and this will be the 20th month of rates at 1.5%. You want this Goldilocks inflation. You don't mm. want deflation, you don't want high inflation. You want it just right. Just you right. want it around 2%. Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. My name's David Brown. I'm the Associate Dean External Engagement at the UTS Business School. And I'm Nicole Sutton, lecturer in accounting at the UTS Business School. And on Think Business Futures, we're taking cutting-edge research, we couple it with real-world examples, and we explore what's actually going on in the business world. Now, on this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. Yes, we are talking to Warren Hogan, our inaugural executive-in-residence at the UTS Business School, who over the last 25 years has worked with major banks and Australian government He's no stranger to media, having regularly graced our newspapers, television sets and airways as ANZ's former chief economist. Today we're going to tap into Warren's considerable economic insight and ask him to explain concepts and terms we often hear in media but sometimes struggle to understand. We want to go to, back to fundamentals and then explore some issues that are really quite pressing today. Now full disclosure... These questions are not our own. We've crowdsourced them from friends, family, colleagues on Twitter, on Facebook. And the real tough questions come from some bright high school students who were recently on the UTS campus in preparation for their economics finals exams. Can income inequality be positive? Why hasn't the cash rate changed in almost two years? Do you believe that the Australian economy will encounter a recession anytime soon? Welcome, Warren. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. Could we start talking about interest rates and the fascinating realm of monetary policy? So what do we mean by a cash rate and how does it actually figure in monetary policy? All right. So we're starting uh, right where uh, my career has been focused in banking and financial markets. So the interest rate uh, that really acts as a benchmark for the whole economy is that cash rate. The cash rate is set... Uh, by the board of the Reserve Bank, and they operate, or the Reserve Bank operates in money markets to make sure that that interest rate is at the level they desire. So at the moment, right here in 2018, it's 1.5%. And every day, the Reserve Bank's treasury operation, its dealing room, is out there interacting with other banks to keep that interest rate at 1.5%. So that is the base rate. It's the overnight interest rate. It's what is charged on wholesale or um, the money that banks lend between each other overnight. It then acts as the basis for interest rates all through the rest of the economy. So the first issue with interest rates is there's interest rates of different maturities. So there's the overnight, there's the one week, there's the three month, there's the five year, there's the 10 year. There's all these different interest rates. So that is the overnight rate that then is the anchor for all in expectations of interest rates into the future. And the other anchor it serves as, it's also called the risk-free interest rate. That is, it's an interest rate that you will guarantee to get your money back. In this case, for the cash rate, Australian banks are guaranteed to get their money from uh, the central bank. Once you go out into the marketplace, it becomes that interest rate uh, complex becomes the government bond yield or the interest rate on government bonds. 
And of course, the Australian government guarantees to give you your money back. So that is the risk-free interest rate, which is really what is used in all economic theory and economic models. But then most people don't borrow at that interest rate, whether it be a, a financial institution, whether it be an individual, whether it be a company, there becomes a premium on the interest rate that reflects the risk that you might not get your money back. So really, that cash rate is the simplest, uh, most riskless interest rate of the shortest maturity in the economy, and it acts as a benchmark for everything else. And it's the core of what monetary policy is. So it's basically the starting point for all other interest rates across the economy. Exactly right. That's a great way to think about it. And of course, this is um, what monetary policy is in this day and age, is the setting of an interest rate that is keeping the economy on an even keel, that is growing at a rate that will make sure that we have everyone in jobs, uh, but not too fast, that inflation rises, that is price rises get out of control. Um, and monetary policy is all about adjusting that interest rate to make sure the economy uh, performs at its best over the next year or so. So on this, the cash rate within the Australian economy hasn't moved around a lot lately. So why is this the case? Why has it stayed relatively low and steady for almost two years? It's a really good question because I've just explained how monetary policy is all about that interest rate. But in the last two years, monetary policy has expanded. It's sort of back to the old days of the pre financial deregulation, financial liberalisation era, i.e. pre-1980s. And that is the flashpoint in this economy has been around household debt. It's been around people borrowing a lot of money to buy houses and those house prices have gone up a lot. And I think it's a very well understood story that Australia is, is heavily, has a very heavily indebted household sector and very high house prices. Now, the Reserve Bank is very worried that if they raise the interest rate, which will quickly ricochet into all interest rates, including the mortgage rate, that that will do considerable harm to this heavily indebted household sector. Now, admittedly, about a third of households have a mortgage. So it's not everyone, but 90% of those mortgages, 85 90%, are floating rate mortgages, are variable mortgages. So when that interest rate goes up from the Reserve Bank, it goes straight into your mortgage rate within the month. The Reserve Bank's worried that they will knock those households over the edge because they're carrying so much debt. So what they have done is they've got these macro prudential tools to try and combat excesses in housing. So it's not so much trying to slow how the economy down or slow existing households down. It's trying to stop people borrowing money who are either investors and highly levered or um, really in a good financial position. So they've basically, through APRA and through the Council of Financial Regulators, given an instruction that you can't have uh, your investment investor housing loans growing at more than 10%. You can't have um, a range of these different measures, which are more quantitative measures, as opposed to moving the interest rate, which is qualitative. And what that has meant is that the Reserve Bank's been able to keep the interest rate where it is, trying to support the economy, while trying to use these other tools to stop the household debt growing, or at the very least, the marginal borrower, you know, the person who has got to borrow 100% of their mortgage or the investor who's buying their you know, third, fourth, fifth you know, investment property. They're trying to take that risk out of the market. And they're doing that not so much to save these people from themselves, but if these investors and speculators get too active in the market and 
you know, push themselves and then they fall over, they risk taking the whole housing market with them. So anyway, that explains why interest rates have been low uh, and steady. And the other factor is, of course, the key one is that the broader economy has been performing well, but it's not yelling out for interest rate increases. And the best indicator of that is that inflation has remained quite steady, quite low. It's, mm. it's about where the RBA wants it, maybe uh, uh, down the bottom of their target range. But Could I just also, in relation to this, unpick the idea that there's a relation between this cash rate and then, say, for example, mortgage rates mm. for banks. Because one of the things we've noticed in recent times is that the banks have been adjusting their mortgage rates, uh, which is, seems to be somewhat decoupled from the mm. cash rate. So you know, they're borrowing from overseas and then lending locally, which presumably provides risk for both the banks but also households. So this kind of relation between the cash rate and interest rates in the economy isn't as tight as it used to be? Would that be right? Oh, no, that's exactly right. And it's, you know, there's a lot of bits to this, but let's start with the first important one, which is, you know, such an essential element of the Australian economy is we are part of the global economy. We're an open economy. We trade, but also we have these financial linkages. And essentially, the banking system is a, is critical in bringing money into the country. Essentially, foreign savings coming to Australia because people overseas want to invest in this country. Banks can only really lend what they've got. And in the two broadest definitions of the bank's customers are retail or households and businesses. And essentially, the business loans and the business deposits match up. There's not a big imbalance there. The big imbalance in the Australian banking system is that we have far more mortgages, far more loans to people to buy houses than we have retail deposits. That difference is essentially what Australian banks have to go overseas and fund. And, and, and investors overseas are more than willing to do that. They get a good interest rate on it, much higher than a mortgage. Uh, well, an Australian bank will borrow it around sort of, you know, 3 4 5%. So they get a pickup. So Australian banks fund their mortgage book partly from the domestic savings pool, i.e. deposits from individuals and partly from overseas. And that's what drives this decoupling. So given that the cash rate is so low, what will happen if Australia enters another recession? It's a very good question and, and hopefully we won't test that. But uh, the, the cash rate right now at 1.5% is, is well below what we would regard as a normal level. Uh, the Reserve Bank Board in one of their communications suggested a normal level is more like 35 I would think it's probably more two and a half, three. It, we don't really know until we find it, but it's, it's above where we are. And why don't we have our cash rate at a normal level, given that the economy seems to be going okay? It's because of this use of macroprudential tools, these uh, quantitative or rules-based uh, policy measures to actually tell the banking system what it can and can't do with lending. It's, it's adjusting the amount of loans into certain sectors. So we're at 1.5. If a recession strikes, we've really only got, I think, effectively about a percentage point of rate cuts. Now, if you think about the global financial crisis, when we had the cash rate at 7.25, I believe, as we went into that, the first rate cut from the Reserve Bank, once they were clear that this was something quite severe, was 100 basis points. And then they went on to reduce the cash rate by about 400 basis points over the next few months. So we don't have that monetary policy ammunition so when you say 100 basis points, you mean? Uh, 100 basis points is equal to one percentage 1%. point. A basis point is a hundredth of a percent. So the standard adjustment in the interest rate from the Reserve Bank these days is 
25 basis points or a quarter of 1%. So as you can see, we don't have a lot of room. 1.5% cash rate is 150 basis points. That used to be what we would look at as a, as, a, as, a, as a size of a monetary policy adjustment in totality. So other central banks have faced this challenge around the world, and that is what's called the zero lower bound for interest rates. Some have gone through it. So in Europe, you actually have negative interest rates. And what that effectively means is that you have to pay a financial institution to hold your money, or you have to pay a borrower to use your money. What? So that it's very is completely rare. counterintuitive. The mattress is looking good at the moment. What? So when you deposit your money, you're paying someone to look after it for you. That's right. And that's not fees. I mean, actually, we sort of pay now because banks love charging fees, but at least you're meant to get an interest return. You're actually getting a negative interest rate. So you give... So I think in Switzerland and Germany, the short-term interest rate's negative. If you're a big wholesale borrower like a company or a fund manager or something... You lend a bank $100, you know you're going to get 99 back at the end of the year, which is counter to all the textbooks. It's all about an interest rate being positive. It's all about an economy growing. Now, there's lots to this about potential economic growth and so forth. But here in Australia, we have an economy that is growing in real terms at around 3.5%. And yet in the inflation, i.e. nominal growth, the actual growth of the economy is around 5.5%. So that's why this 1.5% interest rate seems unusually low and will become a problem for us because if a recession hits, we can only cut interest rates by 100 basis points or 1%, maybe 150. That begs the question, what next? Well, I think the emphasis turns to fiscal policy and whether or not we get fiscal stimulus from the government. And, we, and that and that being, you know, tax the cuts, tax cuts and the, cash handouts yeah. through the budget. Yeah. Um, and then the next bit is whether or not we do what many other central banks have been doing. That's this concept of quantitative easing. And that's where you put liquidity, put money into the economy once the interest rate gets to zero. And there's... Who does that? Who the puts central, the money? The central bank. So what they do is they... When the short-term interest rate gets to zero, they then start looking at longer-term interest rates, and they go and buy government bonds in the market, and they reduce the yield on those or the interest rate on those, but they're also effectively putting money into the economy. It's a very, it's a bit clunky. We're only learning about it because it's only been really in the last sort of 10, 20 years. I mean, you go back 100 years, and this concept of printing money was, you know, it's evil. Why? Why was printing money considered evil? Because it was inflationary. Because you would destroy, you'd debase your currency, your, your monetary system would be worth nothing, and then it would, it would be turned to chaos. Civilization would break down. We saw that in Germany in the 1920s. We've mm -hmm. seen that in a number of sort of what you would kindly refer to these days as emerging markets. The most recent hyperinflation was Zimbabwe. We're seeing it in some parts of South America. It just destroys your your, your economy. <music> You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download the show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, one of Australia's top economists, Warren Hogan, is helping us demystify everyday economic questions. Um, so speaking about inflation, I just want to wind us back and again, just kind of start with the fundamentals and then we can start unpicking this. Could you tell us in simple terms, what is inflation and... Is it always a bad thing? So in, inflation is essentially price rises. So when a chocolate bar goes from a dollar to a dollar ten, that's inflation of ten percent. Economists are concerned about 
two types of price rises, and, and price is everything to economists. Uh, it's it's the centre of economic analysis in, in in my view. There's two kinds of price rises. They're called relative price changes, and there's absolute price level changes. So the whole economic system, a uh, market system, is based on relative price changes. If something is more desired by people, its price will go up compared to other things. The signal that sends to uh, producers is to make more of that, and they do. So it's all about using relative price changes to signal everything from what we want to eat to what we want to wear to where to allocate capital. It's critical, and it works. We see that all happening all the time. Absolute price level changes is when all prices rise. So not just the chocolate bar going from a dollar to a dollar ten, but every item in the economy going up by 10%. Yeah. And that's inflation. And that's, theoretically, we shouldn't have any inflation in, a, in an economic model sense. The, the economic models assume that there isn't inflation, or most of them. And you don't want it because it can, the real world's a bit clunky. If you get absolute inflation, it starts to muck around with relative price signals in the economy and you don't get a, an efficient outcome. You know, and, and we've got lots of examples of that through history. But because the economy is clunky naturally, you also want a little bit of inflation because mm. nothing happens instantaneously. You can't expect, if people want more chocolate bars and less apples, you can't expect the chocolate bar price to go up and the apple price to drop right now. The chocolate bar price will probably go up because people want more of it and it'll take probably a year or so for the apple price to go down. So that will look like inflation uh, in an absolute sense. And really, I think you know, where we're at is that's why central banks target inflation of around 2% is that you need a little bit of inflation to allow the system to work properly. So that's the difference between mm -hmm. uh, the two, and, and absolute price level change is what people refer to as inflation. And so governments are actually aiming to have a little bit of inflation in the system. They're not, they're not aiming to have it completely at zero because that enables for the system to be able to have these relative price changes. Exactly right. And then we now have this new problem in the last sort of 20 years or so where you've got a lot of debt in the economy, particularly in places like Australia and America. And then if you let your inflation get low and then it goes negative, i.e. deflation, then the real value of that debt starts to rise. And that becomes a big burden, particularly when people took on the debt thinking there would be inflation. Mm -hmm. And you know, all central banks target some positive rate of inflation. So this is the concept of good inflation. The absolute worst inflation is deflation in the presence of a society that has debt, and we all do. So we that's debt deflation is is terrible. It was all what all this work came out of the Great Depression, debt deflation dynamics, and everything. And that's what we face post the GFC. That's why they've gone to these extraordinary measures, the quantitative easing. So then you want this Goldilocks inflation. You don't mm. want deflation. You don't want high inflation. You want it just right. Just you right. want it around two percent. It seems that the economy is a lot about Goldilocks. We want to have Goldilocks cash rate. We want to have Goldilocks inflation. Completely. It's the concept of equilibrium. Yeah. And that's what the whole system, well, economics is a vast and complex study and discipline, but core sort of parts of it about the economic system is, is all about equilibrium. Another indicator I want to throw into the mix is around the idea of wages and wage growth. And so I'm interested, because this also seems to be something that we have a Goldilocks aspiration for in terms of having a little bit of wages growth, not mm. too much, not too little, just right. Exactly. How does wages growth relate to inflation? 
Yeah, it's actually a really interesting question because it's um, obviously the, the, the main linkage is that wages are a major cost for business, and especially in an economy like Australia's where it's dominated by the services sector, which indeed in turn is dominated by labour costs as, as the cost of doing business. So you put up your wages and that's going to get businesses to need to pass it on to their customers and that's going to put up their prices and that'll be inflation. We've got another angle here though and, and the challenges we're facing is that inflation is low, wages are low. And you know, why wages low? Well, there's been a lot of changes in the world uh, in the last little, well, last 20 years, but they've really shown up since the GFC and we're not seeing wage growth as vigorous. So let's go back for the 20 years before the GFC. And essentially, we had a, a desire to have inflation of around 2.5%, which was consistent with getting wages of around 35 to 4%. If wages went up to 4.5%, that would probably push inflation above 3 which is too high and would cause interest rates to go up. That, in turn, would slow the economy. Or if, you know, what we're seeing now, if wages fell down below, down towards 2 25 then that would take some down, put some downward pressure on inflation. But wages was always going to be a little bit higher than inflation. And that meant at sort of 4% wages and 2.5% inflation, you would have real wages going up by about 1.5%. And that, of course, is our standard of living. It's real wages going up, which allows us to go out and actually have more in our life, whether mm. we save for the future or we go to a nicer restaurant or have a nicer holiday. That's and really, that reflects us being more productive, whether that's because we're using technology more or we're better educated and working smarter. But it's that productivity that gives us real wages, which then allows us to go out and, and have a higher standard of living. So this is 20 years ago. And I mean, in one sense, I feel a little bit shocked to think that it was kind of standard that there would be wages growth um, of about 4 or 5% a year, which once you take out the hit of, of inflation, so this increase of, say, 2 to 3%, you were still, you were still you know, 2, 2% better off each year, which led to you know, your higher standard of living. So why is wages growth so low now? So from that sort of fundamental perspective, you could say, well, we're not getting the, wage, the real wage growth because we're not getting the productivity growth in the economy which just seems completely at odds with the technology disruption that's going on around the world. Like why are we not better at what we do? Because we're digitizing everything and everything. We just, we all seem to be working harder and so forth. But the reality is with the exception of a few countries, productivity has been quite low. And I think that has got to sit in the background there as a reason why wages growth has been low. But then let's think about the, the what's happened in the economy. And essentially, the competition for labour and wages are the price of labour has had two big shocks. One is technology itself. In a services-based economy such as ours, there is just all this technology coming and taking jobs, whether it be the call centre, whether it be around consumer service. It's just rolling through. And so, you know, a lot of businesses will sort of say to their workforce, well, you know, if you ask for too much, I'm just going to then have the incentive to go and invest in all this new technology and you guys won't have jobs. I'm sure that conversation doesn't happen, but you know what I mean. So there's a technology threat, which is keeping wages lower. The other threat is globalization. We have globalized the international labor force in the last 20 years, and it's essentially been about bringing all these emerging markets into the world economy. So the, the big story, of course, is China, 
China's taking on the world's manufacturing capacity and therefore you know, well, Chinese wages have gone up massively in the last 15, 20 years, but that's all manufacturing workers in other countries have had to compete against that or they'd lose their, lose their business to China. So there's that bit. But then, you know, people actually move. You know, people go and, you know, if suddenly everyone's paying a lot of higher wages in Australia, which we were during the mining boom, and what did we get? We got a lot of people coming here, particularly from New Zealand, um, who wanted these high wages. Mm. But that's actually international labour mobility is pretty weak. The, the one that I think is really important is actually capital mobility. And this is what I think has happened to Australia in the last little while is that businesses can invest wherever. So if you're a high wage area, you're not going to get investment. So look, there's all these factors playing out. The things we know is one, productivity has been low all around the world, which is a bit baffling. Two is that this is going on in most Western or advanced economies. Will it last? Well, you know, the US will be the, the test bed of this because their unemployment rate as of last Friday is at a 60-year low, and that's just basic supply. What, what's their unemployment rate? <clears throat> the US unemployment rate fell to 3.7%, and uh, most ideas of full employment about, you know, what level can it get to was somewhere between sort of four and five. So it's it's well through that. And wages are now starting to push up because there seems to be a dem- an excess demand for workers in the US. But let's just see how far they push up because they they're actually still pretty modest. And here in Australia, our unemployment rates is 5.3. Our full employment is estimated to be around four and a half, five as well. So we've got a fair way to go before we start pushing those capacity limits. Let's turn our attention to one of my favourite topics, taxation and the federal budget. There seems to be this obsession in recent times around having a balanced budget. And if we run a deficit, this is no good and we should have a surplus and you know, we have to get – I mean, political fortunes have been made and lost on this idea in the last decade or more. What's going on with this? Is this a good thing to have a balanced like surplus budget? Is it a bad thing to have a – been a negative budget? Uh, look, it's it's not, um, and there's no hard and fast rules in the sense that uh, your budget should really be there as a buffer for the economy. So the federal government and uh, most you know, governments of advanced economies that you know run pretty well, which ours does and have good legal systems, they can borrow money. They can borrow money off their own people and in this day and age can borrow money from overseas. So if our economy weakens, then the government budget will deteriorate because more people will need sort of transfer payments, welfare, unemployment benefits. There'll be less taxes being paid because there's not as much uh, people in jobs. So the budget will go into deficit, and that's a good thing. And, of course, also when the economy's doing well, you should probably have the budget either at balance or in surplus um, for two reasons. One is if the economy overheats, that'll put pressure on interest rates. So if the budget's there taking a bit of money out of the economy, that sort of keeps it on an even keel. But also, if you want to use fiscal policy to stimulate the economy when it's weak, which I think we, we all do, or most people accept we should, then you know you should also pay a little bit of that back every now and again when the economy is doing well. So it's all about balance. It's all about over the long run, you know, we need to have a government that runs a sensible sort of fiscal policy that isn't always running deficits, isn't always running surpluses, that does what the economy needs at the time. The reality, our laws are captured by a thing called the Charter of Budget Honesty, which basically says Australia needs to run a balanced budget over the medium term. 
that is for every deficit we have, we have a surplus. It doesn't tell you about timing and it's suitably flexible around, you know, how long you've got to get that budget back into uh, balance. So the, you then shift to the next bit is that the federal government is really just a, uh, a conduit for the people of Australia. And the, the, one of the distinguishing features of the Australian economy is, is how much household debt we have. Um, it's the second highest in the world, I believe, after the Netherlands. It's the second highest? <laughs> it's the second highest as a proportion of the economy, of GDP, after the Netherlands. <clears throat> and I haven't got the data to hand, but I think the thing that would really blow you away is just the outright level of mortgage debt in Australia would probably be close to being in the top sort of five, maybe eight of all economies in the world, even though we're economy number 20 in the world or something. Okay, so what's the implication of that when it comes to the budget? It is that the Australian people, as individuals, we're the ones who want to rack up the debt and we expect our government to run itself sensibly over the medium term. And because it's law, because when John Howard and Peter Costello put this into law, um, it's taken as given that if the government runs constant deficits forever, and there's governments all over Europe that do this, the Japanese government does it, the, the taxpayer will go, well, someone's got to pay this back and that'll come through higher taxes in the future. So I'm not going to borrow heaps of money and, in fact, I'll probably save more than otherwise. And you do see that. There's evidence for that. So our country's sort of taken a different view is that, yes, the government can go into deficit and it should when it needs to, like the GFC and recessions, but we should, should make sure that we you know, make an effort to get it back into balance because, you know, where we actually want to run it out is ourselves. We want to choose as individuals that we want to go and borrow the money rather than the government. Unfortunately, the one issue is that the economy is about our society in many respects. It's about our preferences. It's about what we want. There's so much of our, our modern community sort of expressed around this economy. And, and, and then yet it all is mainly summarized in numbers, which, you know, loses what it is. It's, it's, uh, you know, and it's very complex and it's, it's hard to access for a lot of people. But a lot of people, one thing I've never been, never ceases to amaze me is just how interested people are in, in the, in the, the economy and, and how things are going. So. Well, that brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Our executive producer is Jason Lequier. Ben Robertson provides additional production support. As always, we'll put links on the show notes for further reading. Until next time.